Good morning and welcome to The Good Life, Kingdom Living. Uh, this is our expositional series that we are doing through something called the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever given by the greatest person who ever lived, Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7, spoken by none other than Jesus Christ. The goal of the series is to move through it paragraph by paragraph, thought block by thought block, and the goal is to ascertain what is it that Jesus meant when he spoke and what is it the original hearers would have heard. And in understanding that, we can then draw application to our own lives and make that message preached 2,000 years ago relevant and impactful for us today. So, to keep our trend going, take your Bibles, please. Start your engines, please. No, no, no. Take your Bibles, please. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Last week when we were together, we began the introduction to Jesus' message as we looked at this part called the invitation to the good life, uh, Jesus' discussion in the Beatitudes. And from that, we realized that what Jesus was doing is he was basically saying this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from yourself and your sin unto him and follow him in loving obedience as your rabbi, you will be his disciple. Now the people of that day were in such a position that this was good news to them. To give up what they had known and what they were living in their experiences in life to follow Jesus was wonderful news of God's blessing on them. Well, if you take up this opportunity, if you embrace the invitation of Jesus to follow him as your disciple, the result in your life and in the lives of people around you is we will have influence, great, great influence in the lives of people around us. Today, we are going to look at this section of the Sermon on the Mount, often referred to as the salt and the light section. So if you will, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 this morning together. It reads like this. Jesus Christ said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He went on to say this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather they put it on a stand, and it will give light to the whole house. In the same way, in this way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here we go. I'm going to ask you to join me with a word of prayer. We're going to crack this open, understand it within the context of its day and what it means to us. Join me as we pray. Father, thank you uh, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to earth. Uh, out of your great love for us, you did everything necessary for our redemption. But not just to make us right with you, but also to make us right for you uh, in our life, in our character as we walk with Christ even today. So I pray that you would help us to understand through the enablement of your Holy Spirit these words before us now. 
Father, if there were ever a day, if there were ever an age, if there were ever people who needed light, who needed salt, it is today. Help us, I pray, to understand this in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen, amen. So as we begin to crack this open, the first thing I'd like you to notice uh, as we look into this is what I would call the human condition. The human condition. Now, I, this comes from an inference uh, given by Jesus Christ when he referred to his people, his followers, as being salt and being light. The human condition is one of an unregenerate heart and depraved desires walking in the darkness of sin. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a few minutes, but what I really want to say right now is this. I chose this title for what Jesus is saying on purpose. I did not choose the world's condition. I did not choose the culture's condition. I did not even choose the society's condition. Because Jesus is not talking about all those things. What he's talking about here is people, individuals. Let me show you what I mean. He says this, you are the salt of the earth. Now, the word earth here has many meanings. It can mean to reach down and pull up some good old terra firma. You know, you got some good old earth in your hands. But that's not the meaning here. The meaning is not the muddy ball that we stand on, but the earth refers to the habitation of humanity. It is where people live and move and have their being. You are salt to people, to individuals as you rub up against them. He goes on to say, you are the light of the world. Now, the world here doesn't mean the globe. It certainly doesn't mean the world system. It is people. It is individuals. For God so loved the... Yes, it's not, it's not the globe. It's not the world system. It's people. It's individuals. It's you. It's me. That is what God loves. So what I want you to understand here is that salt of the earth and light to the world refers to our influence over individuals, over peoples. Now, I've gone to that trouble to say this. A lot of people take these words, salt and light, and make it a mandate to redeem culture. They take salt and light to mean that we need to redeem the structures of society. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That is taking beyond what it's actually saying and turning it into something that people really want to do, which is try to redeem a culture. Friends, it doesn't work like that. It simply doesn't. You see, it is in our culture, the depravity and the darkness and the sin, because it is in our nature. And if you're going to redeem culture, you can't do it apart from redeeming the human heart. That is just the way it works. You can put all kinds of laws and regulations and all kinds of rules on an unregenerate heart, and all it's going to do is rebel. My concern is there are many churches today who are now using a lot of energy, a lot of resources. They're using a lot of their ministries to try and redeem these structures, and Jesus never told us to do that. Now, I would hope the church would have influence in its community, but our goal in being here is not to influence our community. Our goal in being here is to influence individuals to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Because until the unrepentant heart changes, society cannot change. You know, it, it just kind of uh, makes me a little numb to realize we didn't learn anything through all those days of the culture wars. You know, Jerry Falwell and, and the moral majority, which really wasn't a majority, it wasn't very moral. You remember those days? We put all kinds of resources into winning Congress and going there and doing all this stuff, and look where we are today. A lot of good it did, right? It is because the heart has not been changed. It, it, it's going to take a, a great awakening. It is going to take a revival of God's people to get serious with the gospel if we're going to see our culture change. So I'm trying to make the point here. This is not a mandate to change culture. I hope we have some influence on culture. This is a mandate for us to be salt and light in the lives of individual people. So please hear me when I say the gospel is our mission. Jesus Christ gave us the great commission, and it was to make disciples. It wasn't to change the culture. And so, too, these words speak to that. In fact, I believe these are actually reflective of some words that Jesus Christ had already spoken. I believe there's some parallels here. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, or chapter 4, uh, in verse 17, Jesus said this, his early words, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I believe that parallels the Beatitudes where he was saying, quite frankly, turn from yourself and turn from your sin unto him and follow him as your, your rabbi, your savior, your Lord. So I think he was saying that there. And so just a few uh, verses later in chapter 4, he says to Simon Peter Andrew, later James, his brother John, follow me and I will make you fishers of what? That's right. And I think that parallels exactly what it means to be salt and light. We are to be fishers of men, not those who are going to catch the culture. That's not our job. May God renew our culture. But that's not what this is talking about. And I'm afraid too often we run down that road believing that's what it says. And I don't believe that's what it says. So the human condition, the human condition, and gosh, what do I need to say? I mean, you all got a television, you all got a, a computer, you all, some of you all read newspapers, not so many do now as they used to, but yes. Every day, we turn around and we turn on the television and we see the human condition, don't we? And it's not getting any better, is it? How many murders happened yesterday? In how many locations? How many troopers were shot last night? Every day. More and more and more we see happening around us. So, you know, I'm not going to belabor this part of the message. You know, I could go to Romans chapter 1 and talk about how God has withdrawn his hand of blessing and how he's given us over. Or I could go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 and talk to you about how bad the end times are going to be. And you'll all go, mm, that's so bad, that's so bad, that's so bad. And you know what? It's so bad, it's so bad, it's so bad. It is. It is bad. It is terrible. Amen? And it's not getting any better. In fact, I was reminded just the other day of the truth where uh, Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, if you're taking notes. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who even really understands it? And then Jesus later on said this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That was brought home to me the other day when uh, Courtney, uh, our uh, secretary, uh, got a video from a friend who lives in Seattle who had just shot this video uh, for a group he works for. Watch it with me and be stunned. 
There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'd be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult?
while I believe it is very important for us to have Christian thoughts in the marketplace of ideas, while I believe it's important for apologists to stand firm as to what it means to live a Christian life, my concern is we see young people like this. How many are worried about the future in light of that? Yeah. We look at young people like this, and we, we want to belittle them. We really want to mock them uh, because it's ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous what they're saying. But can I just say this? Because our mandate is not to turn back the tide of the culture but to win individual souls, we need to look at every single one of those people he was just interviewing as somebody that the Father loves and that Jesus Christ died to redeem we need to be careful not to carry our banner for whatever we desire America to look like so high and so loud that we're actually driving away the very hearts that we are called to reach. My concern is that we are so big on cursing the darkness, and that's a great evangelical pastime, isn't it? We get in our groups and we just say, it couldn't get any worse, it couldn't get any worse, it couldn't get any worse. Well, it's going to get worse. I just want you to know that. But our calling has never been to curse the darkness. It has been to give a light, a light to show people the way, how to live, what it means to know God. Can I just say, when you have no God and no Bible, all anybody is looking to do in life is to, is to have a good life. People are only looking to be happy. People are doing the best they know to do. They're taking the prevailing culture and they're taking the norms of that culture and they're trying to find meaning and purpose in life. We've got that. They need that. And so, you know what? Because they want meaning and purpose in life, they don't want to hinder anybody else from having meaning and purpose in life, so they come up with LGBT and add a lot of other letters from the alphabet to that. Everybody's just looking to be happy in life. Let me ask you, are you looking to be happy in life? Sure you are. With no God, no Jesus, and no Bible, let's not mock them. Let's see them as those who stand in need of a relationship with a God who loves them. Maybe they just need to be shown compassion. Maybe they just need to be given an evidence of what it means to know God and what it means to walk with Him in beauty. Maybe we should be lights to those who are caught up in darkness. What a novel idea. Let's move on. The human condition. Secondly, I want you to notice Jesus talks about the disciples' calling. The disciples' calling. And he goes on to say this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now notice the others is not society, it's people. Notice it's not society or culture that's going to see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. It's people, it's people, it's people, it's people. Let's not let this passage be hijacked by those who want to change the culture. It's about people, one heart, one life at a time. That's what he's talking about. But notice he says, you are. You are. These are not commands. These are not even suggestions. These are not even requests. These are statements of fact. What he is saying is this. If you have come to me and you have embraced me with your life, turning from yourself and your sin, and you follow me as a result of following me, you are salt. You are light. 
by virtue of your relationship with me, is what Jesus is saying. Now, let me kind of unpack a little bit uh, of what salt and light are in light of the cultural, uh, the day in which Jesus uh, walked. Um, salt, uh, salt is an interesting illustration because it has many connotations. Um, on the one hand, salt in Jesus' day was considered something that was extremely valuable. Um, the Roman soldiers who had the uh, Jewish nation in subjugation in those days, uh, they were actually paid with salt. Salt was the currency in which they were paid. Uh, in fact, our word salary, that which you earn, actually comes from the word salt. If somebody wanted to know whether or not you had a good work ethic, they would simply say, is he worth his salt? Ever heard that expression? Yeah, so that actually comes from the days where people were paid in salt. They wanted to know if they were worth the investment. And so in a very real way, salt was valuable. It was something in some parts of the world that was actually more valuable than gold. So salt had that, that sense in the crowd that Jesus was speaking to that day because they knew how the Romans were paid. But they also were near the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was a freshwater lake upon which many of his followers were fishermen. Now, obviously, they caught some of their catch, and they would keep it for themselves and eat it fresh. But much of, many of them were commercial fishermen, which meant if their catches were going to make it to Jerusalem and to other ports around the Mediterranean, it would have to be salted. And so, in another way that they would have understood this, is there would have been a preservative effect connected to how salt works. And then there's actually something else that I actually found rather interesting and kind of gross at the same time. Uh, they had this thing that they produced uh, around the Sea of Galilee called a briny gourmet fish sauce. Can you say, ooh? That just sounds ill to me. I don't know. And so they had this thing called a briny gourmet fish sauce that was used as a condiment on various foods and apparently a little bit went a long way. So not only would they have understood it as being something valuable like money or being used as a preservative, but salt was also used as a flavoring uh, in these people's minds. So when you kind of put it all together, the metaphor of salt can have kind of this meaning. It means that, uh, that when our lives come in contact with others, when our lives come in contact with others, that you are, that we are, having a valuable preserving effect that flavors people's lives and makes them thirsty for Jesus. That's kind of what it means. I think that's how they would have perceived it. But how do you do that? What does that mean, Pastor Bill? We'll go there in a minute. So we've looked at the issue of salt and how it's valuable and how it preserves and how it flavors and can create thirst. But the other illustration given is, is simply the idea of being a light. This is much simpler much more direct, there's not a lot of extra connotations. Uh, when it got dark, you lit a, yeah, a lamp. This is an oil lamp. Uh, they simply would have put some kind of an oil, probably an olive oil, something pure, and this is a simple wick. They would have lit it. It didn't make a lot of light, but simply that, what that uh, would do is it would dispel darkness. Uh, it would help them to see their way in the dark so they know where they're going. Uh, it is simply something that they would light so that they, they could understand what was in the dark. And so this connotation is pretty straightforward. We are light in dark lives. In people who don't know where they're going or what they're doing or how they are to respond or act because they're still in darkness, spiritual darkness, moral darkness, 
we become a light unto Jesus Christ, who said, I am the light of the world. We are a glimmer, a simple glimmer of who Jesus is in their lives. So that is what the salt and light metaphors really kind of hint at. It is our ability to influence others with the love and the beauty of Jesus Christ because they are caught up in a lost and dying, drab and dreary world. So the question is this. That all sounds really good, but how do I do it? How do I do this? Well, actually, that's really what much of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about. It is about how to become salty. It is about how to become brighter. As we walk through what the Sermon on the Mount is about, it's going to show us how uh, we can indeed have greater influence in the lives of the people around us. It is about following Jesus in loving obedience and having our hearts and lives become like his. Let me say that one more time. It is about following Jesus in loving obedience and having our hearts and lives become like his. That's how you get salty. That's how you become bright. You see, it is not the, the sameness of my life with the rest of the world around me that makes Jesus winsome and attractive. It is the difference that Jesus Christ makes in my life that ultimately is attractive to those whom the Holy Spirit is at work in. And that's what we are called to do. Now, this brings us back to where we were last week. This brings us back to the question that I left you with last week. You remember at the end of the message, I said, hey, I want you to go home and I want you to think about this. Jesus said, if you are not willing to, to um, quite frankly, turn away or, or um, give up everything for me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. So let me bring us back to that thought right now. As you have wrestled with this, I hope, as you have come to appreciate what Jesus is trying to say, there is no way we can be salt and light in the lives of our loved ones, our family, our neighbors, our community that we uh, work with, unless Jesus Christ is the very center of our lives. There is no way. There is no way our faith is going to grow unless Christ is the center. There is no way that our priority is going to be different than anybody else's in the world unless Jesus Christ is the one who sets those priorities. There is no way that even how we choose to live our lives and our health means will be any different than the rest of the world unless Jesus Christ is the center of our lives. There is no way that my marriage will look any different. My relationship to others will look any different. My finances will look different. Even how I serve others unless... Jesus Christ is the center of my life. Does that make sense? Now let me go a little deeper. And I may get in trouble for this, and we can talk after it if you want. All true disciples, followers of Jesus, are believers all true believers are disciples of Jesus. Did you hear what I said? You see, we have it in our minds, particularly in the way that the American church has proclaimed the gospel over the years, that there are various kinds of classes within Christianity. There are those who believe in Jesus and are going to heaven, but you know they were baptized or walked forward into church one day, but they now live in the world. But because they made some kind of profession of faith, we think they're good to go. 
don't hold onto that as a form of assurance that people are okay. Or we can even have this idea that, you know, I come to church and I, I put money in the offering plate, I, I do my best to be attending, I, I do my best to sing the songs, even the songs I don't like, and I, you know, so, and I do my best to be a part of things, but when it comes to actually seeing my life transformed and changed and become like Jesus and loving people, yeah, that's not my brand of Christianity. I'm not interested in going there. So let me say this one more time. All true disciples are believers. All true believers are disciples. The Bible does not know another kind of believer other than those who are willing to give their lives to follow Christ and become like him. Now, let me go on to substantiate that because you're obviously a very intelligent group of people and I don't want you to simply take my word for it. So, the word disciple, I think i got a few minutes, yes. The word disciple is uh, actually... Um, a wonderful Greek word, methetes, methetes. I did a quick search on that word, and it came up uh, 268 times in the New Testament. And it was found in 252 different verses, which means some verses had it more than once in the verse. So the word disciple is found 268 times in the New Testament. It was found in Matthew, it was found in Mark, it was found in Luke, it was found in John, and it was found in Acts where they took the great commandment, the great commission to make disciples of all nations, and they began to push it out across the then known world. But you will not find the word disciple anywhere in the epistles, which seems highly odd if, if that's what we're supposed to be about. If Jesus, we're supposed to follow Jesus, if he's supposed to be the, the one that we put our complete allegiance in and we're willing to trust entirely our lives with, then why isn't the word disciple elsewhere in the letters of Paul? Well, let me explain to you. Paul did not preach into a Jewish context. He did that for a little while. He gave up on that, and then he moved on rapidly to the Gentile world, a Greco-Roman world. And Paul was trying to move away from Judaism with the call of the gospel, the Christianity. He didn't want to be a subset of Judaism, so he didn't go to the Gentiles and teach them to be Jews. He didn't tell them what a rabbi meant and what it meant to be a disciple of a rabbi because that's not what he was seeking to do. He was trying to find something in that culture that would say the same thing and help people to know what it means to be fully Christ's. So Paul left that teaching behind, and he moved forward. And here is a verse of Scripture that we like to use a lot when we lead somebody to Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. So I want you to know the replacement that Paul used for Jesus as the master rabbi and us being the disciple. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be what? Rescued from your sins, brought under the umbrella of salvation. The righteousness of Christ is placed on your account because he died for your sins. Okay. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For well, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Now notice the repetition in here. This is what we overlook in our culture in our day and age, but you need to understand how Paul meant it. He referred to Jesus as the, Jesus as the, Jesus as the, Jesus as the, He's the Lord. 
Now, in a culture, a Greco-Roman culture, where the Caesars were taking on a religious context where you would have to burn incense yearly to Caesar is Lord at the altar of Caesar, when people would come to put their trust in Christ and call him Lord, they were actually taking their lives in their hands. Jesus is everything, not Caesar. I believe in Jesus as Lord of my life. That's why in an absolute... um, a culture of, of slavery. There were 50 million slaves in the ancient Roman world. That's why Paul's favorite word for himself is, I am a doulos of Jesus Christ. I am a slave of Christ. They understood that. Oh, I get it. Yeah, as you follow Jesus, you're now his slave. We get that. You've got a new owner. His name is Jesus. Yes, you've been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You belong to Christ. So you see, he changed the metaphor from rabbi and disciple to now lord and servant or slave. He also used sonship and some other wonderful terms that they would have understood in the Greco-Roman world. But the, the same appeal is there. Don't just believe and receive and go on your merry way. Embrace Christ with your life and follow him. That is what brings to you eternal life. Now, I want you to notice Paul's experience. Hey, Paul. How does this whole Christ-centered life thing look in your world? He said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. Do you see what he's saying? This is not meant to be super saint stuff. This is normative Christian experience. Okay, John, how does it work in your world, man? Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is being perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he what? Peter, what do you think? So we've heard about Jesus. We've heard Paul. We've heard uh, John. Peter, what do you say? Set your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You've turned away from those things. But now, as he who has called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for what? Yeah. So you see, what Jesus is saying here is you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Why, Jesus? Because in coming to me, you have given me your life, and you're now following me, and I'm making you like myself. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. It's not just believe and receive, and you're good to go. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all by God's grace. It's all by his sovereign mercy. We don't deserve any of this. But he expects nothing less than this in our experience. So, my friends, this is the disciples' calling. We are called to be simply salt and light in the lives of people around us. And out of, um, and out of our lives with a transformed and radically different way of living, we become good in him. And out of that, we have a platform in which to share with our words the life-giving message of the gospel of his grace. And it only happens as we turn from self and sin and follow him with our lives. Lastly, 
want you to notice the Lord's concern. <laughs> the Lord's concern. And uh, he goes on to uh, state his concern here in verse 13 and 14, 15 in this way. You know, if your salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, here he's talking about the problem of failure, of failure. Uh, if we're not careful, we can get overwhelmed in the journey and we can just fail to the point that we want to give up. And he's, he's trying to encourage us not to give up. And then in verse 14, he says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket or under a basket. Why would he even say that? Because often we want to hide. We want to hide the light of Christ in our lives. So this is the two challenges here. It is the challenge of failure and the challenge of fear, both of which can keep us from being salt and light in fulfilling what Christ wants from our lives. Let's talk, first of all, about the salt. He said the salt has lost its taste. Uh, a lot of folks have burned up a lot of ink in writing on that because sodium chloride cannot lose its taste. Sodium chloride is one of the most stable substances on earth. In fact, if you were to take a salt shaker and put it in the middle of your table and you were to wait for the half-life of that salt to go away, which means that it would be half as salty as when you first put it there, you would have to come back in about 300,000 years. So salt doesn't naturally lose its taste. However, in light of where they lived and where he was speaking and, and the people who were listening, they knew that the salt that came to the Sea of Galilee, the freshwater lake, to pack their fish and to ship down river and sometimes into Jerusalem and around the Mediterranean, that it actually came from someplace called the Salt Sea, better known as the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea actually has about eight to nine times the salinity of the ocean, and that's because it is the lowest point on earth and the sun just bakes off all the water and leaves the minerals. And so when you come along to pick up the salt minerals from the sea salt or the, uh, the Dead Sea, the chances is amongst those, those compounds can be other compounds. You may not be getting pure salt. So in other words, you can have contaminated salt that's no longer really tasty. It doesn't have any taste and because it has impurities in it. The impurities need to be taken out of it so that it can really be salty. So Jesus is not saying the salt can really lose its flavor. The problem is contamination or the idea that it was never properly purified. With that in mind, I believe that Jesus Christ is challenging us not to give up in the pursuit of knowing him and living for him. You see, as we talk about living the Christ-centered life, this isn't easy. How many have been on the journey and would say it's an easy deal? How many would say it's been hard? It's not easy to honor the Lord. It's hard to follow Jesus Christ. It's hard to say no to me. It's hard to live this way. Yeah, it is hard. And it's easy in the journey to fail and to want to give up and to want to say, I just don't want to go there anymore. And Jesus is saying, no. No, 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 don't let the impurities continue to be in your life because I want you to be really salty and I want you to create a thirst in the lives of other people. And so long as impurities remain in your life that I have not properly dealt with and that you refuse to deal with, you will no longer be salty for me. Again, C.S. Lewis, I like these words, C.S. Lewis. We need not despair, even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. Say that with me. For our failures are forgiven. One more time. For our failures are forgiven. Now, 
The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than purity, perfection, saltiness. Don't give up in the journey because I'm going to turn you into someone who can ultimately influence the lives of the people around you for my glory, and I will not let anything keep me from the glory I properly deserve. So there is that aspect. But the other side of this is fear. Oh, wait a minute, before I move on. If you are not presently uh, getting ready to step into one of these two studies, we have childcare available, there's food, there's coffee, there's no excuses. If you presently don't have a small group or you don't have a, a study group on Sunday mornings, I want you to track into Pastor Bill's class. He's going to be right over there in S3 following this service. And I want you to go in there and say, Pastor Bill, I want to know what it means to grow in Christ. I want to do all I can to become like him. Help me, Pastor Bill. And I want you to have so many people in that classroom, we'll have to give you a bigger one, okay? There's no reason why we shouldn't be pursuing this, and I want to give you this as an opportunity to pursue. <clears throat> All right, the other side of the issue is fear. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light under a lamp, or a, a, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on a stand. I've been frank with you all morning. I might as well continue, eh? For every one person that's attracted to the light of Christ in your life, there will be dozens of others who are repulsed by that light. You bring conviction to them. You give them the sense that you're holier than thou, even though you're not trying. Your mere presence around them makes them uncomfortable. And all I can say is, get used to it. It is what it is. You have to accept the reality that the world doesn't necessarily like Jesus. What did they do to him? Yeah. And by the way, this section actually flows out of the last blessed there in verse 11 where Jesus said this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Dude, good job. Because that's what's going to happen. Listen. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven will be great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What makes you think you're any better than the prophets? Get used to it. They're going to find it very uncomfortable to be around you if you're really salt and light. Some people will be drawn to that by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and they're going to say, What's, what, what is it with you? How do I get what you got? I want what you have. And other people are just going to be like, oh, man, we've got to stop swearing for 15 minutes while he's in the room. And then once he leaves the room, we can start swearing again. You know, it, it's, it, it is what it is. Accept it. Let's stop being afraid of it. You know, I got this, this quote. I thought it was so good. Um, <clears throat> Living in fear creates an illusion of safety, but in reality, it is bondage. Think about it. If we just keep to ourselves believing that makes us safe, all we have done is bound the gospel from those who need it. Salt and light. Salt and light. Salt and light. Salt and light. Who is God calling you to be salt and light to? And now some folks are sitting here right now and they're saying, Oh gosh, Pastor Bill... Please, you're killing me. All right, I'll be salt and light in the world that you have called me to. I just want you to know I'm doing it against my will. I hate every minute of this. 
Can I just say, if that's your look for salt and light, you are going to repulse everyone. But rather, I want to leave you with a lasting positive impression that hopefully will turn your smile, your frown, upside down, give you a bit of a smile. This is a song done many years ago by a man of God uh, by the name of, um, uh, yeah, Chapman, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman. It's an old song, but listen to it and see if that doesn't help. I get a phone call from Regis He says, do you want to be a millionaire? They put me on the show and I went with two lifelines to spare And a picture of this, I act like nothing ever happened And bury all the money in a coffee can But well, I've been given more than Regis ever gave away I was a dead man who was called to come out of my grave And I think it's time
very real way, Jesus was saying, it's time to go public, guys. Salt and light are going to have impact in the lives of the people around you. It's time to live out loud. All right, at least fake it, would you? <laughs> Let's pray. Ah, oh, Lord God, help us to love you. Help us to love Jesus. Help that love to so captivate our hearts and our minds that we are willing to do anything for you because you did everything for us. I pray that today's message will not just bounce off, but that it will land deep and that you will challenge us to follow Jesus into the depths of purity and into the depths of light. And I just really pray, oh God, that you would use people such as us to make a difference in this community and in the lives of the people around us to bring you glory. That's why we were created, to bring you glory. Father, in the wonderful name of our Savior and Lord, I pray. And the people of God said, God bless you. We will see you next week. Be salt and light. Be salt and light.